All right, y'all. Well, it's a blessing to be with you this morning and to be able to open up the Word of God with you. Uh, we're continuing in our series of teachings on the parables of Jesus. Uh, but I want to start by asking you a question. And don't look in your bulletins. Maybe you've already seen the answer if you've looked at the title of the sermon. Um, but what, more than anything, should characterize the life of a person who is going to heaven? Something that's externally observable. Is it purity of speech? Oh, they don't swear. Is it going to church on Sunday or having a good Bible and prayer plan and sticking to it? Is it generosity or accurate theology? Uh, maybe it's performing miracles or casting out demons. Maybe it's being a good Bible teacher. And obviously none of these things are bad. And a lot of these things, or maybe most of these things, are going to characterize the life of a person going to heaven. But I think there's something that is more simple, but far more foundational. The thing that should most characterize a person's life who is going to heaven is love. Is love. You know, John 13, 34 through 35 says this. Jesus states to his disciples after he washes their feet in the upper room, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So the question is, do the unbelievers in your life know that you are a disciple of Jesus by the way that you love them, others, and God? Do they know? Or do they just know based on the shirt you wear? You know, oh, Pastor Stephen, he loves to wear anchor church shirts, which is true. Uh, he must be a Christian. Or, you know, I, I've never heard Pastor Stephen swear he must be a Christian. It's more than that, right? Do people know that you're a follower of Jesus by the way you love? You know, today we're going to be talking about the Good Samaritan parable, which is a very well-known parable, and for that reason, I think it's all the more important that we look deeply at it so we don't get a board book version of it. You know, Ezra, this is the Good Samaritan. There were some guys who didn't look after this guy, and there was a good guy, and woohoo, look, he loved him. It's the board book version. Let's make sure we're understanding what Jesus is saying. You know, there, there are three kind of spiritual principles about love that we're going to see in this, in this parable and in, in what we're going to talk about today. And they're easy, right? We should memorize these. We should, we should know these. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love others the way God loved you and loves you. And treat others the way you want them to treat you. Love others the way you want them to love you, right? So love the Lord the way he loves you, love them. And the way you want them to treat you, treat them. Super easy to understand, right? Much harder to live out moment by moment. So what we're going to do today, we're not going to jump right into the parable because I think it's important to lay a foundation before we build upon it. So just to give you a little bit of insight into the structure of the message today so that 25 minutes into it, you're not thinking, he's never going to finish this, which you probably think every time I'm, I'm preaching. Um, doesn't he know that the service is over in five minutes? Yes. Um, the third point in this message is actually going to be a time of reflection and prayer and journaling for you. We're not going to end in a worship song. I'm going to give you time to reflect on what we've just talked about. Think through a couple questions yourself, and, and I want to share those questions with you now. So if you, you turn to the back of your bulletin, if you have it, and if you don't, we should grab some. Maybe ushers can, can grab a few of them and pass them out if, uh, if there's anybody who doesn't have it. Just raise your hand. The questions are, does the way that I love others, or rather, goodness, 
Does the way I love set me apart from the world? Does the way that I love set me apart from the world? The second question, does the way I love demonstrate God's love for the world? Does the way that I love set me apart from the world? Does it make people say, what is different about them than everybody else in this classroom, than everybody else in the boardroom, than everybody else in this office? They're different. They love way differently than everybody else. Additionally, does the way that you love show God's love for the world? I'm going to give you time to answer that. And then I'm going to give you time to think about a few people in your life who you're going to radically or commit to radically loving in the way that God has loved you. And think about practical ways you can actually do this. So that's where we're heading. So it's really a two-point message. The last one is for you. So our first point for the message is that truly knowing God leads to love. Truly knowing God leads to love. John 13. Can we use this one? Ooh, that's loud. All right. Here we go. We're going for it today. 1 John 4.19 says this. 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. You know, with the youth group, uh, we, we did an event called One Kingdom about a week ago. And... I and three other youth pastors preached out of the book of 1 John. And the last night, Pastor Mike Locke from Moraine spoke on 1 John 4 and 5. And some of the things he said really, really impacted my heart. I don't know why, but every time I read this verse before, I'd always thought of it as, because God has loved me first, I love him in response. Which is true. But if you read what he says in the verse immediately after it, he says this in verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. So, what is he saying? God has first loved us, and in response to this, we love others the way God has loved us. If we say we love God, but we don't love each other, we prove ourselves to be liars. Why? Because you're right in front of me. I can see you. And if I can't love you, how can I possibly love God who I don't see? I think that's huge. I think we need to take that into account, evaluate our lives, see how we're doing in this. Because the thing is, if we confess to know Jesus... And that confession doesn't change our heart and produce love for God and for others. Something has gone horribly wrong. Something has gone horribly wrong. Our next point is that eternal life is a gracious gift that cannot be earned. Turn with me to uh, Luke 10. This is where we're going to be spending most of our time. So keep your finger in Luke 10. The context leading up to the Good Samaritan parable is this. Jesus sends out the 72, two by two. He tells them to preach the gospel to those in the cities that he's going to go after them. He gives them authority over the demonic forces and to heal. And they come back and they're excited. Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Oh my goodness, can you believe this? That's a good reason to rejoice, but Jesus says this, verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He says the reason that you should be rejoicing is that you are saved, because you cannot earn it. 
God was gracious to you and gifted it to you. So rejoice in this. Don't rejoice in the blessings alone. Don't rejoice in just the gifts or what you can do because you're saved. Rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in the fact that you know God. He then goes on and says this. In the same hour he rejoiced, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus rejoices in the fact that it's the lowly, it's those who are dependent upon God, who place their full weight of trust in him that God gives salvation to. It's not to those who are of the pinnacle of intelligence, the wisest that the world have, who say, I figured it out. I figured it out. It's because of me that I know God. Jesus says, I rejoice, Father, that it's your plan, that it's the little children who know you, and you give salvation, and it's because of your gracious will. Salvation comes to the one who's humble enough to admit their utter need and to look to God for his perfect provision. Our second point is a response to this. So eternal life is a gracious gift that cannot be earned. Therefore, it should naturally lead us to love God and others. We look to the cross as our perfect example, and we already saw this in John 13, but look again what Jesus says in John 15. In John 15, he says this, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you, just as I have loved you. This is your example, this is what you're to follow after. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, let's pause here, and we're going to do this in the Good Samaritan parable as well. Is Jesus saying that you earn your salvation here? He says, if you do what I command you, then you're my friend, which means that my death is applied to you. Well, let's look at what he says just before this. So that's 1514. Let's look at 1415, where he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So let's think about this progression. Somebody places their faith in Jesus, has true saving faith, and they're saved. As a result of this, in understanding the grace and love and mercy and kindness that God has showed them in giving them salvation, they love him in response, which produces obedience. So Jesus says, if you do what I command you, you're my friend, and I've died for you. Which means if you love me and you therefore do what I command you, then you are mine. Therefore, we're to follow the new commandment. Love one another just as I have loved you. You know, John loves this idea. He carries it over into his letters as well. 1 John 3.16 says this. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. So the cross is not only our perfect provision of salvation, but our perfect example of love that we're supposed to follow after. Every day we're supposed to get up, take up our cross, deny ourselves daily, and follow him. Love ultimately is self-sacrifice. I don't know if the world gets that much today. Love today is very much about accept me for who I am and give me what I think I deserve. It's about me. God demonstrates his love through sacrifice, through giving, not taking. And so this is our example. And I think this is an incredible thing. Um, This is exactly what Paul gets at in the book of Philippians. And Pastor Bob very helpfully a few weeks ago pointed out to me, though Philippians is known as the book of joy, it's actually the book of self-sacrifice. Because in living your life for others, you actually can live a joyful life. He says, put on the mindset of Christ. He says, 
He says um, in Philippians 2, let's put it up on the screen if we have it. Philippians 2, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, count others more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. For this is the mindset that Jesus also had in himself. And then it goes on to explain this which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jesus, although he is equal, the Son of God, with God the Father, says, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to go to the cross because I count you as more important than me even though we're equal. This is the mindset of Christ. And though we are equal, brothers and sisters, we need to count one another as more important than ourselves. We need to consider each other's interests and not just our own. Why? Because that's love. Love looks to the other before self. Paul says this is actually why he sent Timothy to the Philippians. This, this really hit me. Uh, we're studying Philippians with the youth group this past week. And this passage really stood out to me. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him because he's a good preacher, because he, he really knows his theology well. No, he says this, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for you, for your welfare, for they all seek their own interest, not those of Christ Jesus. So, let's think through this again. If you consider the interests of Jesus before your own, the result of this is concern for one another. So if you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. Because you're putting yourself third. God first, which results in others second, and me third. The second point is that more knowledge of Scripture should lead us to love more. The more you know, the more you should show your love, right? The more you know, the more it should show. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you go to the the Old Testament, and you read about the sacrifices. What should this do uh, in addition to maybe just confusing you? It should make you think, wow, this is what I deserve. And look at the provision God has given for me. Wow, I love God. And whoa, I'm not the only one who needs to be covered. I should be merciful to my brother and sister when they sin against me because I need sacrifice just like they do. How much more when we look to Jesus on the cross? This is why we should love like him. So the question that I want to ask you as well is, in your life, is the person who loves best the person who knows the word best? It should be, but is it true? How about if you were to make a list of the top 10 people in your life that love you and others the best. Would they all be Christians? That's how it should be. But is it? I'm going to argue it's probably not. Why? Because I think there's a disconnect today. Which actually makes sense. Because the Lord Jesus says that as the end times come near, love is actually going to grow cold for one another. I think that's exactly what's happening. And this is not me saying Jesus is going to come back tomorrow because of this, but we're getting closer and closer to the end, and I think love is continuing to grow cold. Our, our, heights, our, our hearts are like icicles. We don't show love for one another as we're meant to. So this is not always the case. The more knowledge of the scripture you have, the better you love. That's how it should be, but I don't think this is always the case. So that's our next point. Instead, knowledge can do things that it's not supposed to. It puffs us up. It makes 
uh, and constructs false superiority. Oh, if you only knew like I did. If you understood it, you're misinterpreting this passage. Oh, if you just knew this. Or it creates separatism. Oh, you interpret it that way? I can't even have fellowship with you. Paul tells us, as Jesus does, that love is the intended result of the law. Love is the intended result of the law. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10 tell us this. Romans 13, 8 through 10. Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. The Greek word there can be translated, it's the intended result, it's the goal, it's what the law is attempting to accomplish is to create love in you. And this makes sense, right? When God commands you, don't commit adultery with your neighbor, don't have your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's husband, he's saying love them. And this is how you're going to show your love to them, is by honoring them in this way. When he says don't steal from your neighbor, he's saying love them. He's giving us direction on how to love. So love is the intended result of the law. But is it true in our lives that as we increase our knowledge of the word, that our love increases? I'm not sure about you, but this wasn't always the case in my life. God had to radically intervene and change my focus. If you know me at all, uh, you know I love reading the scripture. I love studying the scripture. Besides being in the presence of God and spending time with my family, what I love most is deeply studying the Word. I mean, it's like an obsession. I want to know. And there was a point in my walk, honestly not that long ago, within the last two years, where I lost my focus. And it became about acquiring more knowledge of the Scripture more than anything. And so I would study, and I would study, and in my teaching, my desire was to teach others to know as much as they could as well, which, if you're doing it for the right reasons, is not a bad thing. But when it's only about attaining knowledge of the Bible and not knowing more of the Bible so you can better know God himself, you've lost your focus. So I was reading in my devotions at this time the, the Gospel of Matthew, and there were things that just hit my heart like a weight. In Matthew 9, the Pharisees, after Jesus uh, encounters Matthew, the tax collector, and Matthew is saved, uh, and, and he throws a banquet for Jesus and, and uh, invites his sinner friends, can you believe it? And Jesus is eating with them, can you believe it? He's hanging out with sinners, can you believe it? Well, the Pharisees couldn't, and they asked his disciples, why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? Do you remember Jesus' response? He says, it's not those who are well who need a physician, it's those who are sick. I came to seek and save the lost. And he says this, in typical rabbinic form of, you must not understand this, so go read it again. He says, go and read and see what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He quotes Hosea 6.6. 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, in Hosea 6.6, 6, God is confronting rebellious Israel who is continuing to go to the temple. They're continuing to do all the rituals, all the sacrifices. They're raising hands in worship. They're giving their tithes, and yet they show no love or mercy to God or to others. And then I got to, to Matthew 23. Oh, goodness. You ever read Matthew 23? Matthew 23, that's where, where Jesus gives the woes to the Pharisees and the scribes. 
In Matthew 23, 4, he says, They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move, even a finger. And so I started thinking, I'm teaching so much to these people and setting the example that this is what they need. You want to know God? You have to know as much as me, like this. Every week I am pouring it out like a fire hose. And I start realizing that three or four weeks later, I'm not even remembering the things that I'm teaching. Because I'm doing too much. I'm making it all about knowledge. And then I read this. Oh, and this was it. 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. I wasn't doing that. I, <laughs> we, we use those on, on salmon and, and, and when we cook curry. But um, we don't tithe it. You, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Did you know that there are more important parts of the law than others? God says, that's great. You come and you give me your tithes. In Hosea, he says, stop giving me your sacrifices. It's a burden to me. It's an abomination. I, I can't stand it any longer. Why? Because you have no love. You have no mercy. You have no faithfulness. You don't care about anybody else. You've made it all about knowledge and ritual. Man, that just broke me apart. And obviously every part of that wasn't exactly the same, but there are some things that really hit my heart because I lost focus. My focus wasn't loving God and loving people, but just attaining more knowledge. I don't think I'm the only one who has a problem with this today. How does the world view Christians today? How does it see us in our response to the poor and the orphans and the needy and the widow? We're some of the more controversial groups, right? How does it view us in our response to the LGBTQ community or in our response to racial division or politics? Are we known by our love even in the midst of our disagreement? Or are we just known as those who have separated ourselves into our own tribes and won't even talk with these people, won't respond well on Facebook, won't have meals with these people, or are we known by love? This is a huge problem in Jesus' day. And we're about to get into the parable. You say, goodness, finally. This is a huge problem in Jesus' day. So we're going to talk about the result of knowledge versus relationship. You read through the Gospels, you hear the Pharisees and the scribes and the, the lawyers and the Levites. They knew the law, but they didn't know God. Do you know that's possible? You can have all the right theology, you can have all the right answers about what the Bible says and still not know God. The Pharisees and scribes, they know the law, but they don't show love and mercy. There's a disconnect. This is the issue that Jesus addresses in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's important that we understand this. This is why we've laid this foundation so we can build upon it. So Luke 10, starting in verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do, teacher? You see, he starts... Uh, on the wrong foot, right? He assumes there's something he needs to do in order to gain it, which means he can earn it. What sort of impact do you think this would have on a person and the way they live and the way they treat others if they think that based on something I do, I gain eternal life, and then I look at you and you're not doing the way I do? Can't believe you. <laughs> you should be more like me. This lawyer was a lawyer of the law of Moses. He knows it better than 99% of all of Israel. Therefore, based on what we've learned, he should show love better than 99% of all of Israel. And yet he doesn't. In response to this question, in verse 26, Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength 
and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Yay! Woo! He knows it. That's great. This is actually the same answer Jesus gives when somebody asks him, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so he knows it. Um, this is actually not that profound of a response. Just about any Jew would have answered this way. I don't know why. Maybe this is weird. But as I, but as I was thinking of this, I thought to uh, the movie Elf. Have you guys seen the movie Elf? For sure the best Christmas movie there is. And, you know, they're, they're in the, uh, the Christmas store, and the fake Santa comes in, and Buddy the Elf starts to question him, you know? And he's trying to figure out, you know, are you the real one? And he says, oh, yeah? Well, if you're Santa, what song did I sing for you on your birthday last year? And the Santa says, well, happy birthday, of course. And he's like, oh, darn it, you know? Um, Jesus doesn't have this response here. It's not like, oh, he knows it. Oh, he tricked me. No, here's the point. He knows it, but it has no impact on his life. He knows it, but his life doesn't show it. So Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now let's interpret this correctly. Is Jesus saying you can earn your salvation if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself perfectly? He might be, but I don't think that's his point here. You know, hypothetically, if you did this perfectly like Jesus did, could you earn your salvation? Maybe, but nobody can do this. So maybe he's trying to show him the impossibility of gaining salvation. He could, but I think it's more simple than this. This guy says, what do I have to do? How much obedience do I have to give in order to earn my salvation? And Jesus says, you've got it wrong. If you love me, this is the start. Then you're going to obey me. But without love, it doesn't matter how much obedience you do. It doesn't matter what you do. What saves is a faith that produces salvation that results in the love of God. And that produces obedience. So then Jesus, in light of this, tells a parable. The man says, desiring to justify himself, who's my neighbor? You know, maybe if my neighbor is... Just the Jewish people, not the Gentiles. Well, they don't deserve love, do they? Or just the Jews who know the law well and, and live holy lives. You know, my own people. If they're my neighbors, I'm okay. Again, he's, he's slipped away from love and gone back to doing. Jesus says, let's, let's figure this out. Let me tell you a parable. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, verse 30. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. Okay, if you're a Jew in that day, you say, hooray, woo, somebody's going to help. Why? Because the priest who works at the temple knows the law better than anybody. Of course he's going to help. Of course he's going to be the one that loves. He knows the law. But it says, by chance, a priest was walking down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by to the other side. Not only does he do nothing, he intentionally avoids him. Here he is. Oh, wow. Mm -mm. I'm too busy. Now, he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. So, implication, he's either going to worship God in Jerusalem or coming from worshiping God in Jerusalem. Okay, well, maybe he was busy. Maybe he had something more important to do. What about the next guy? So likewise, a Levite, once again, a servant of the temple. He's not a priest, but he knows the law well. He lives it out. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Same thing happens. Okay, now we see the most unlikely individual who does what he should why? Not because he knows the law best, but because he loves God. But a Samaritan, everyone go, no. No. I mean, you mean the, the enemy, the one who is unclean, the one who the Jews won't even associate with because they would be spiritually unclean, the half-bloods. Him? Yes. The Samaritan, as he journeyed, 
came to where he was, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. He is moved with compassion. That word is a, a really interesting and strong word in the Greek. And it's really hard to say. It has a, a bunch of consonants in a row that shouldn't be in a row. It would be like a G, X, and N being in a row in English. Splagnitsamai. You know what it means? It means for your inward parts to churn. You know that feeling when something happens or you hear news and you get sick to your stomach? I mean, you just got a knot in your stomach. That's what he experiences. He has compassion. He sees him, and he can't help but to help. You know, this word is used of Jesus more than anybody in the New Testament. So what does the compassion of Jesus look like lived out in the New Testament? Because I think we can have a view of love and compassion based on our own understanding and expectations, right? Matthew 9, Jesus sees the people are like sheep without a shepherd, and so he leads them. In Matthew 15, after the people following him for three days straight with no food or, the, or water, and they're hungry, Jesus feeds them. The word is used in each of these passages. He feels compassion, and so he does these things. Matthew 14, he sees the people sick and suffering, so he heals them. Matthew 20, when nobody else took the time to see them, Jesus hears the two men who are blind and calling out to him, and he stops to give them the ability to see. Matthew 18, he tells a parable, which is really about us, and he sees our unpayable debt, and so he forgives us when we cry out to him for mercy. That's what Jesus' compassion produces. How do you show the compassion of Jesus in your life? Do others see that sort of love and mercy and kindness in you? Verse 34, speaking of the Samaritan, again, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. That's love, right? So what does this passage show us about love? Love moves towards the person and not away. He sees him and he goes to him. He meets his needs. He goes in with active help. Love treats others the way we want to be treated. I can imagine this man saying, wow, that could have been me. This road is dangerous. There are robbers hiding in caves. That could have been me. And if he was walking by, I would want him to, to help me. This is what I would want somebody to do to me, so I'll go and do it. Love cares for others the way God cares for you. I imagine if God was walking down this road, if Jesus was walking down this road, this is what he would have done. Love is willing to sacrifice at any cost. He says, I'll give you the two denarii for each day, but if there's anything else you have to do, I'll take care of it when I come back. Whatever it takes, get this man well. That's love. Okay, so then Jesus asks him a question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Basically, who loved the best? Was it the people who knew the law? Memorized literally the whole Torah? Or was it the Samaritan who actually had compassion and showed the love of God? And the lawyer who also memorized the Torah, knew the law better than anybody, says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Brothers and sisters, you see, the thing is, true lovers of God reflect the love, kindness, and mercy of God. Did you do something to earn God's love? How about his kindness? How about his mercy? 
then why is it that most of us, probably all of us, are far better at loving those who love us? At giving to those who can give back to us? At loving our friends rather than our enemies? That's what the world does. That's what Jesus says. He says the world does this. That's not the supernatural divine love that I'm calling you to. He says this in Luke 6. Luke 6, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, or the Sermon on the Plain, he says, Love your enemies, do good, and lend, expect nothing in return. So he says, do this without thinking of what you're going to get out of it. Because love costs everything. Love is about giving, not receiving. As a result of this, you will be sons of the Most High. Not that you earn your salvation of being born again, but you're going to be like your father. Why? For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. This is a constant theme throughout the New Testament and the Old. We're to respond to God's mercy and love and kindness by showing the same to other people. When you go home today, write this down. Read over Titus 3, verses 1 through 5. In Titus 3, Paul describes how you should treat unbelievers. And this is where the, the really well-known passage is, um, where it says, uh, for by grace, no, that's, I always get Ephesians 2 and Titus 3 mixed up. Let me flip to this so I don't make more of an embarrassment out of myself. I just flipped to Ephesians. See? What the heck? <laughs> For by grace you have been saved. No, I'm doing it again. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Spirit. He says God didn't save you because of something you did. God saved you out of his love, mercy, and kindness. And you used to be like these people, enslaved to your sin, haters of others, haters of God, and this is how he treated you. So don't wait for them to treat you well and deserve your love and mercy and kindness to show it to them, because God didn't wait for you to do that. You know, God calls for a supernatural, otherworldly love that's others-focused, that costs everything, that's not focused on what I get out of it. We're able to do this because we have the Holy Spirit. As Peter says, we're sharers in the divine nature. Because Christ lives in us, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When we love as God loves by the power of the Holy Spirit, we make the invisible God visible. They see him through us. They see his light through the light that he shines through us. You know, this made me think of Moses. Do you remember why he didn't go into the promised land? Because he approaches God, says, the Israelites are complaining again, of course. They need water. God says, okay, go and, and put your stick on the rock, and water will come out of the rock. And what does Moses do? And he smacks the rock, right? Because Moses is frustrated with the people. And God says, Moses... You misrepresented what I told you. That's not how I responded. That, I'm showing mercy here. You're misrepresenting me. And it made me think, could the reason that so many are not coming to know Jesus in the world today be because so many Christians are not known by his love, and therefore he's still invisible to people? I mean, think about that. When you came to know the Lord, was it just that you listened to an apologetic argument online and you said, oh, I am intellectually convinced I will believe in Jesus now? Maybe that was part of it. Or did you read the scripture and you say, wow, you know, the book of Hebrews really makes sense to me. I never heard anyone explain this before. I get it. I believe in Jesus. Maybe that's part of it, right? Of course, God uses those things. But I would be willing to bet, and I'm not a betting man. I'm not smart enough to be. Um, 
that you had somebody in your life that showed the, life of, the love of Christ to you. Maybe more than one person where you said, I want what they have. I can't believe, nobody's ever treated me this way before. Somebody made the invisible God visible to you through love. And this softened your heart so that when you open the scripture, the Holy Spirit could plant those seeds and use it, and it finally made sense. Or you listened to that apologetic sermon, and, and you were ready to receive it because of the love that Jesus showed you through one of his disciples. So as we move to point three in your time, the question that I want to ask is, are we known by our love? Are you known by your love? Are we known by our love? So I'm going to give you a couple minutes to think through this. And these, the first two questions are yes or no questions. This is not the point, and you've had some time to probably mull over these things throughout the sermon. Does the way I love set me apart from the world? Do people see that I'm different from everyone else who doesn't believe in Jesus because the way that I love them, others, and God? And does the way I love demonstrate God's love for the world? Does the way that God loved me show in the way I love others? Maybe it's yes. I would say strive for more. Strive for way more. And if it's no, strive for more. Strive for way more. So take these couple of minutes to pray, to reflect, to call out to God, to ask for him to put on your heart who it is in your life that you need to be showing the radical love of Jesus to. And take some time to think through as well how you can practically do this. I'm going to give you a couple minutes to do that, and then I'll come back up and pray.
All right, y'all. I uh, would invite you to not let this be the last time you think about that. I gave five minutes to think about that. I think, um, you know, this is, this is what we're called to, folks. And this is the, the mission of our church as a whole, right? To glorify God by the fulfillment of the great commission in the spirit of the great commandment, right? If we want to impact the world for Christ in our school, we've, we just prayed for the administrators and the teachers and the staff and the students. Um, you're not going to do that if you don't love like Christ. It's not going to happen. People will refuse to listen to you. And they might refuse to listen to you. Rather, they probably will refuse to listen to you as well, even if you love them. But the ones who will be impacted will do so because of your love. So as Jesus' last words to the man were go and do, so is our last point. Imitate God's ultimate expression of love. What you've written down, what's on your heart, what you're going to think about the rest of the day if you didn't finish this, go and do it. Don't, don't leave that here. Let this be your mission this upcoming week, this month, this school year and the rest of your lives. As you go, know that you are loved by us and let others know that you love them.